Hello, welcome to the Modern House podcast, where guests share their favourite living spaces from around the world and explore what home means to them. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. Today's guest is the brilliant architect Sarah Featherston, who runs the practice Featherston Young with Jeremy Young. The pair have a son together and split their time between their self-designed homes in East London and Wales. I just get very intrigued about people's behaviour and relationships with each other and how that gets played out in our homes and our houses and, and, and how, as architects designers, we can facilitate that. Sarah's particularly well known for the outstanding houses she's designed both for herself and others, including Jack Windmill in Sussex, which is a modern family home alongside a historic listed mill, and T. Headfan in the Brecon Beacons, which cantilevers out over a river. I like the idea that you don't over-design it and that there is space and gaps left for people to make it their own, to adapt it, to, to add to it and to bring it to life. Although, of course, not everyone brings a space to life in quite the way you might choose. The day that Right Said Fred came was just so scary because they were everywhere. There were people everywhere. I found people under beds and, of course, they were dancing on the marble worktops. Of course they were, yeah. I can't even pretend it didn't happen because it's going to be in the pop video. (laughs) We'll get to that shortly. But before that, because her work strikes me as simultaneously strong and sensitive, I kick things off with a bit of a fanciful question about Sarah's surname. I was, think, I was thinking about it, actually. It's a great surname because it combines feather and stone. They're like these two opposing, really lovely things, aren't they? There's the strength and then there's the, there's the lightness of touch. Do you think that those things carry through to your work? I think that they do. And I think it's also very much represents me as a person as well, in a way. Quite contradictory, quite contrasting. Um, but as you say, yes, I can see how that might follow in our work as well. I, w- I wanted to ask you, Sarah, about... What, what do you think are the kind of main principles that underpin your architecture? I mean, obviously, sustainability is a big one, isn't it? Well, another thing that I really think is important about sustainability is the sort of social sustainability, how we as people behave. And I just think those very small scale observations have really informed a lot of what we do, which is understanding when you're designing homes, not just about the sort of ways in which you super insulate and make them energy efficient, but actually how are people going to use that? What's that going to feel like to live in? Does that fit with the way we like to be? It strikes me that, you know, for example, in my house, which is Victorian and very leaky, um, just like actually putting in some door curtains and getting someone in to refurbish the sash windows has made a massive difference. Don't you think that perhaps the, the sort of first thing that we can do around sustainability is try and work with what we've got and improve what we've got rather than always building things from scratch you know what what can we do with pre-existing materials and buildings I absolutely agree and we do that at all scales you know so it could be within the home that's reusing what we already have and as you say of course super insulating is a good thing Um, but it also works with some of the ways we think about if we are building new where we build that so again it's about using brownfield sites working with the character of a place that you're perhaps inserting something. But coming back to the home, I love this idea of ritual. There's an amazing house I remember reading about where they make it a ritual at different times of the year to 
put up the curtains as the winter comes in, to put down rugs onto the floor. And it becomes a whole day of sort of transforming the house. It's like a kind of theatrical performance almost, so that uh, it it suits those different seasonal changes. And um, I suppose those are sort of things I really enjoy. And if we can build that into the way we think about um, homes and how we um, uh, design them and live in them, it's things like that that I think are are really lovely. That's great. I, I love that. That's brilliant. I really like that. It's sort of reminiscent of those old country houses, isn't it, that get kind of put to bed um, at certain times of year. Um, one of your best-known projects is this house that you guys built in in the Brecon Beacons in Wales called Tie Head Fan, which I think means hovering house, doesn't it? I think it's Tea Head Fan. Oh, but, sorry. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, very yeah, hard I, I did wonder. with the Welsh language <laughs> to actually uh, to get pronunciations right. And, and even within uh, in Wales itself, different people pronounce it in different ways. Uh, so Tea Head Fan was a project, actually, that allowed me and Jeremy, my partner, to test out what it's like working together. We'd been um, in a relationship maybe for two or three years. We um, found this plot and it was pretty much the first property we, we went to see. And it was just a piece of land in the middle of a village, which for me is perfect because I I think it's really important that you um, try and keep villages compact and not sprawl out into the countryside. We got there and what's so amazing about that plot is that one long side of it is uh, it has a river frontage. And in fact, there's two rivers that run and join, could join at that point uh, where it meets our site. So that in itself was a kind of deal breaker. It's also on a hill. And actually, it turns out that it was less attractive to a lot of people because trying to build a more conventional house on a hill doesn't work and the flat bits were too small uh, at the top and at the bottom close to the river, which is, I think, arguably where you might want to build, you couldn't because you weren't allowed to build within six metres of the river because it was a protected uh, river bank, um, you know, looking at protecting wildlife habitats and things like that. We're quite different and we both wanted sort of thought about it in different ways. I was quite keen to be very close to the river, whereas Jeremy was quite interested in how we can kind of extend ourselves along the contours of the hill uh, and terrace it more. So with not much space on the site anyway, we ended up with a sort of principal part of the house, the main living space is cantilevering across to the river. And interestingly, the effect that has now is less about being on the river, but more about being in the trees. There's this wonderful sort of line of trees all along the river. So it's almost like a tree house when you're in our main living spaces and you've got that sort of dappled light and um, the trees sort of swaying around you. It's, it's quite an amazing effect. And so that's also... An idea around Tea Head Fan was that with these two wings, we could be more efficient in the way that we lived there. So that if it's just the three of us, that's myself, Jeremy and our son, Joseph, who's now 13, we can just be in that main wing because we, 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 we sort of snuck a little bedroom up into the lofty sort of roof space or two bedrooms. Um, and then the other wing can be closed down and that wing works when we've got people coming to stay or we've got guests that are renting it uh, and that has another two or three bedrooms so it means you don't have to heat that wing if it's just us. And that really works quite well. It's, a, it's an amazing place. It really is. Uh, how did you personally end up in architecture in the first place? Where does that go back to in your life? Well, it goes back quite a long way, I think, because uh, and, but I think it was uh, sort of unknowing in a way that um, when I was at school, two of my very close friends had amazing houses, houses that their parents had commissioned and they were modern houses, and they were both quite different. In fact, one of them is, is the one I've chosen uh, to talk about because it was so inspirational. There I was, I live, you know, I, I grew up in the countryside in Dorset, West Country Girl, 
Um, and so going to stay with my friend in this house introduced me to a whole kind of urban life that I wasn't even, you know, hadn't really been accustomed to. Why don't we move on to that then? So your, your first choice is um, 23 Kensington Place in West London, uh, which was built by the architect Tom Kay in 1967. I've been to the house um, and it is fabulous, but um, just tell us about your story around it and, and your childhood memories of it and, and, and why it's important to you. I think it was a kind of unknowing thing that I was inspired by it. But when I look back and reflect, which is always a good thing to do and I never do enough, I can see that there are threads and things that I saw in that house that I have, you know, brought into some of our other projects. But when I first went there, I mean, it was just a whole glamorous world as well, because my friend Madeline, Madeline Bailey, her mother was Angela Hickey, who was an opera singer very beautiful woman, very flamboyant. And her father was, I think, a very well-known commercial photographer, Christopher Bailey. Uh, and this house was just nothing I'd ever imagined. I mean, it's a completely black or blue-black brick house, both inside and out. Everything's upside down in a way. I was in the guest bedroom, which was down in the lower ground floor, and all the living spaces are up at the top. It's got a very blank frontage. I just remember thinking this doesn't even look like a house. You know, I think it was, it's the end of a, a terraced, um, a series of Victorian terraced houses. You know, now as I look back, you know, clearly this was a, a, a labour of love for um, Madeline's parents when they commissioned this. You know, I don't think they intended to necessarily knock down the house was, that was there originally, but they did because it turned out to be a more efficient way of dealing with what is a really tight plot. I mean, I think it's a bit like my house, Voss Street in London. It's only about four metres wide. So they were trying to shoehorn an awful lot of things into a really small space. And so the clever things are just ways in which light is brought in from skylights, the way in which the main stair, which is which you, you see as soon as you come up the street, is being pulled outside of the house in order to make the house layout work more efficiently. But I think then as, as a sort of schoolgirl, it was little things that just struck me as amazing. I mean, Madeline's bedroom was super tiny, um, but it was designed down to the last sort of detail of shelving and the bed sitting within a sort of furniture of, of cupboards and niches and all sorts of things everything was thought about they also had a dumb waiter which I thought was amazing you know this idea of the kitchen at the bottom of the house and the living at the top uh you know there was this dumb waiter that would stop at Madeline's bedroom as well you know I loved it you know we could have these kind of midnight feasts when things would come up through this this hoist and then even in the guest bedroom it was um it was a bunk bed arrangement and I think it was the top bed that sort of swung out and became a kind of table desk if it wasn't being used as a guest bedroom. So there was this kind of flexibility that they were building in. But yeah, I mean, it was just the whole experience. I remember just being absolutely kind of flabbergasted, really, with just that place. It was amazing. Tom Kay, when you start reading about the architect himself, is a super interesting guy. Well, he is. Um, I, I, I was reading um, his obituary in The Guardian um, and it's it's fascinating, but what they said was, um, this is a quote, he was an adventurer who loved motorbikes and deserts and foaming rivers. He was a conscientious objector who refused to do national service in the late 1950s, and he took part in anti-nuclear action, sitting in a concrete mixer in Swaffham, Norfolk, to oppose the building of a Thor missile base. Um, and then he, he worked for Erno, Erno Goldfinger early in his career as well, who called him a bloody little anarchist, um, which is great. But it sounds quite swashbuckling, doesn't he? 
He does. And I was kind of thinking, can I remember whether he came round or whether he was there at any time? Because they were really big social people. And I know lots of people did come round, but it's too long ago for me to remember that. But I kind of think if he did, I would remember him. He just sounds amazing. Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he then built himself a house in Murray Muse. And yeah. again, it's a sort of very much a difficult site in one of those tiny muse streets. And I started feeling like there were, again, similarities with the house I designed for myself uh, 25 years ago uh, in Voss Street in East London. I still live there. Yeah. And so those challenges, you know, Voss Street, I think, takes quite a lot of cues, funnily enough, from Tom Kay's Kensington Place house, because it also has that spiral staircase pulled out of the house itself Mm. and actually pulls the spiral staircase slightly apart so that we can introduce lots of different levels so Mm. it's over three stories but um, they're sort of half stories so rooms that look at each other either side of a little courtyard have a bit more um, animation because you're slightly up or down from each other so Mm. it's sort of a bit more um, subtle in terms of the relationship between spaces. It's one of my favourite things about London actually is is that feeling of 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 sort of going through this kind of mysterious portal and and another world opening up on you. With the most extreme example I've seen is um, a house in Highgate that we sold many years ago, where you 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 entered it underneath a pre-existing um, probably nineteen seventies kind of block of flats, and you, and you drove or walked underneath it. And at the back were all the slightly dilapidated garages for the flats. And one of the garages was a slightly smarter garage door and it opened up into this incredible newly built house. I mean, it was an amazing thing. But talking about the external appearance, getting back to, to Kensington Place, it's very fortress-like, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of imposing, yeah, Staffordshire brick with a cylindrical stair turret and then a kind of slot window. I mean, it does look like a castle. Um, what what would you say to someone, you know, perhaps locally who might think it's a bit of a monstrosity and not really, you know, doesn't coexist very well with the Victorian terraces around it? How would you defend it, do you reckon? Well, um, what would I say? I mean, it is quite castle-like, but at the same time, it brings intrigue. There's a lot of playfulness in its form and shape that it takes on that corner. Uh, so it's quite animated, you know. I mean, they've chosen to use a brick that isn't the same as the other bricks. It isn't the London mm. stock. I'm assuming that's partly because it's an engineering brick. It might have been partly to do with the way it was constructed. But I, I wouldn't say it's a sort of blank box as such. Uh, I would say that it offers quite a bit to the street in a way. It's quite animated. It's got roof terraces. Uh, it breaks down. It's got that lower garage. So I don't think it's an unfriendly neighbour or a, a, a negative to the street. Mm. And getting back to the space in the house, you've mentioned that it's basically inverted, isn't it? So the bedroom's lower down and, and the living space is higher up. That, that seems to be something you're quite keen on. Why, why, why do you like that? Well, again, I think with um, with these very tight urban sites, mm. it's almost nonsensical to have your living spaces at ground floor because very little light gets down to those spaces. And if you do have gardens, they're not the biggest gardens in the world. So again, quite shady. So it makes sense, I think, to elevate those spaces that you spend most of your time in uh, to the top floors and if possible, have them opening out to, you know, green spaces. And of course, that's that's possible if you start thinking about flat roofs or terraces and things. So it makes perfect sense, I think, to the yeah. rooms that you spend little time in to be lower down. And as you mentioned, the stair tower is is pushed out beyond the sort of envelope of the building, which means I imagine they did that slightly to get around planning as well, because it obviously makes it 
sort of bigger without really <laughs> without really kind of messing with the footprint of it. But what's great about the stairs, I think, as well, is the sense of drama that you get when you use them inside because they're, they're open tread concrete stairs and they, I don't know, just the way you sort of wrap around. And then and then the, the, um, the handrail, I think, is made of polythene water pipes. Yeah, I read that. I don't remember that at the time at all. Do but not... again, I just like that economy of means, that kind of thinking, you know, yeah. the kind of creative thought that went into some of these details. Um, but yeah, I think the spiral stair, I mean, I love it in our house as well. I love this idea that you get kind of into this quite cocooned space and it really contrasts with then opening out into, you know, mm. the big living spaces and things like that. And mm. it's fun. And I just think there's an element of fun. Yeah. It, but at the same time, as you say, it was it was born out of being a need, you know, being functional. It was a kind of way spatially to get the whole layout to work, to not use up too much space. But at the same time, I just think it heightens and, and makes it a much more fun place to be in. I mean, it's just really striking. Definitely. Well, I think the sense of fun leads us nicely on to your second choice, um, which is uh, 31 Corsic Street in Highbury, North London, uh, which is a warehouse building that was converted into loft apartments by the architects Paxton Locker in the 1990s. So tell us about this one. Well, Richard and Heidi were a total inspiration to me. I studied my degree at Kingston Polytechnic, which is now Kingston University, which I think actually Richard had studied at or taught at at some point. So we should just should we should just say this is Richard Paxton and Heidi Locker that were the were the were the members of Paxton Locker. That's right. Yes, and sadly Richard died way too early in life. You know, age forty nine. But Richard and Heidi are just the most amazing, smiley, positive charming people you get sucked into their lives and I was very lucky I was finishing my degree at Kingston and Richard I think contacted the university and said introduce me to a couple of your students we want to you know we want we want to get have somebody come and work with us Uh, so he came to our show and I met him and you know he is just larger than life Richard big smile so I ended up working with them for them and their office at the time was in Corsica Street just off Highbury Fields and this was the 90s. Life was just very different then. It was very heady. And, <laughs> well, Richard would always take us out for lunch every day. Um, and there were parties every night. And basically, <laughs> Corsica Street was this warehouse building, which I think they'd acquired. They'd been living in a smaller place in Islington. And then they bought this place. And uh, it was the early 90s. They just converted it into four apartments and kept the ground floor as offices. But the four apartments had sold for considerably more money than they'd ever imagined. So there was this opportunity to turn the top floor into this amazing home for themselves. So we were their offices were in the ground floor. um, And I had this sort of experience of drawing up details of how to build some part of it and then taking that drawing and going upstairs and watching you know the carpenter or whoever build it so Mm. uh, it was complete hands-on and it was hands-on in every way you know I got involved in their their life you know Caitlin their eldest daughter was born while I was working there and Freddie came not long after Uh, and um, sort of yeah they just I think built a lot of confidence in me they they were very um you know, they were very determined that anything was possible. They gave me a lot of responsibility. It was really empowering. And then they really supported me when I uh, I actually 
as a result, I think, of probably working with them, was able to buy a really tiny little um, flat uh, in a tenement block near Hoxton. It was them that kind of encouraged me to kind of pull it to pieces, uh, <laughs> uh, start again, you know, rethink it. And so I think I think it's um, the reason I choose Corsica Street is partly because of the way Richard and Heidi had such an impact, the way they practiced, the way they uh, went about things, had such a, uh, an impression on me. I think on one level, Richard has got a particular interest in techie things and gadgets, mm. and he's quite well known for introducing retractable roofs and, and other such things. You know, I think there was a snooker table in one of his houses that rises out of a floor. Uh, <laughs> he loved all those things. And I have to say, those are things that I love less. But what I do really like is actually just how they do think about spaces and, and how you bring light into really difficult... A lot of their projects were these backland sites or old buildings. And they just... He was just... They were just... I mean, it's very hard to, to take one apart from the other. They work very closely together. Um, uh, just really brilliant, I think, at choreographing spaces. And so Corsica Street, they have a swimming pool. Most of their houses have an indoor swimming pool. But this it's the positioning of the swimming pool to me that I thought worked mm. really, really well. It's right in the middle of the warehouse building plan. And it's on the top floor and it's top lit. And it's just amazing how that the light dropping onto the water then bounces back into the living space. So it's moves like that that I think work really, really well. And so there's some really big grand gestures. You know, the whole entrance sequence into that apartment is 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 quite big. You know, you, you, you kind of have this very grand stair that zigzags its way up into the main living spaces. But then in contrast, again, I really love the fact that you then have these secret stairs. So, you know, if you live there, you have a different experience to if you're coming there for a party and there's a sort of little back stair that's hidden behind a door that you would never expect to be a door that takes you back down to the kitchen. And so there's lots of really tiny things like that that I think work really well, too. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. It's, we've sold most of the flats in the building over the years, but including the their old flat on the top. And it's the, the swimming pool, you're right, is sort of the defining factor in the flat in a way, because it, it's almost like an artwork, isn't it, the way they present it? And it it's, it's, it's glazed, entirely glazed onto the living space, so at all times you're living sort of with the swimming pool. You're always interacting with the swimming pool. I'd never seen anything like it before I went there. But you're right, then they introduced swimming pools into kind of all of their projects, and it sort of became their thing, didn't it? And their most recent house that they did together before Richard died was the the house in Hampstead, where again, there's just this, I mean, there's just an amazing swimming pool running the full length of the flat. And then there's an open air courtyard with the retractable roofs that, that make a sort of inside outside space. Um, and it's just, as you say, incredibly playful. They were always playful, weren't they? Yeah, definitely. And just really experimental, always trying out something. I mean, they're constantly reinventing the wheel. Now, that's not always a good thing, but I think at that point in my life, I just thought that was just, you know, just amazing. We were always trying to work out how to, I mean, I remember with this stair into Corsica Street, you know, what plants, how can we, what kind of form of plant growing can we introduce to sustain this trellis of plants that they wanted coming up the stairs, you know, we looked at aquaponics and, and then there were these, this kitchen, which I don't think really exists there anymore, but there was two kitchens in that house. One is the sort of day-to-day -day kitchen that's hidden at the bottom of the stair, but then there's this much more on-show kitchen, which serves the main living space and we've spent weeks weeks and months designing these kind of mobile trolleys which are kind of the kitchen mm. that kind of have retractable 
uh, cabling to them and gas supplies and all sorts of things. But they kind of they're just catering trolleys that we kind of customised and turned into kind of full on kitchens. And they kind of disappear back into cupboards or you pull them out and you start cooking in front of everybody. So crazy things, uh, lovely ideas that, you know, we would spend a lot of time on to get just right. And um I don't know. It was just, re- as I say, really heady times. I, they, they, I lived there for a while. Did you? They went away on a holiday and uh, entrusting me with looking after the house and the builders were still fiddling around doing bits and pieces. But I also had to um, oversee a video shoot for Right Said Fred. <laughs> and I just remember <laughs> Richard saying something like, it's, you know, it'll be fine, Sarah, but just make sure they don't stand on the cantilevered marble worktops. <laughs> And uh, my God, that day, the day that Right Said Fred came was just so scary because they were everywhere. There were people everywhere. I found people under beds and uh, it was just, oh, my God. And of course, they were dancing on the marble worktops. Of course they were, yeah. And they were filming it. I was thinking, how am I going to explain this to Richard and Heidi? I can't even pretend it didn't happen because it's going to be in the pop video. Yeah. That's excellent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, they were really fun times. Um, oh, that's great. I think what strikes me about what you're saying is that they 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 obviously really kind of relish the social side of of what they did Richard and Heidi and Heidi, Heidi's been very good to us as well she's been incredibly supportive of the modern house and she's she's just this lovely person to to work with and deal with and and has has this just this really lovely way about her so I can I it really resonates with me what you're saying I don't know if you've been as well to the project they did on Clerkenwell Green. I visited Clerkenwell Green, but um, I wasn't involved in the design of that. I I think there's probably only about possibly one external window uh, and the rest of it all just everything overlooks this central courtyard. It's it's, it's like a sort of, you know, kind of Spanish courtyard house or something. And it takes all of its light from above and somehow it just sort of works. I remember one of their quirks, quite quite aside from swimming pools was um, and retractable roofs, was that they always did his and hers bathrooms. Um, I remember Heidi telling me that it's kind of, you know, it's hard enough to live with someone else without bumping into them first thing in the morning. <laughs> but but I, I I really like that. I think everyone should have his and hers bathrooms, don't you think? Well, that's interesting. I don't remember a his and her bathroom in Corsica Street particularly. No, I think maybe um, maybe after but that. But must have come later when yeah. they had a bit more space to play with because, of course, the other end of the scale, going back to the Tom K house, is the space was so small that they had a Jack and Jill bathroom. So, every you know, there was two doors into one bathroom. So I suppose you just you work with what you're given, don't you, in a way? And, uh, yes, you're right. <laughs> I suppose if you've got the space, it's lovely to have two bathrooms. It is, it is. Very good. Let's move on to your third and final choice, um, which is another fantastic one. It's Creek Veen in Fioc in Cornwall, uh, which was designed in the mid-1960s by Team 4. So uh, first of all, for those who might not know about Team 4, tell us about who they were. I mean, again, a, a nice idea, I think. The very name suggests a collaborative form of working. And it was Sue and Richard Rogers and Wendy and Norman Foster. So it was actually two couples working together. The house was for uh, Sue Rogers' parents, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. So Marcus and Renee Brumwell, um, Sue Rogers' parents. That's right. What I'm not quite sure on, what was actually on that site right from the outset, because it's an incredibly challenging site. It's (laughs) very, very steep. Yeah. It's on the River Fowl, you know, near the estuary and um, has the most stunning views. Um, And, and, and And by the way, they they partially funded it. 
by selling a, by... Mond- a Mondrian that they had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Matt, have you actually been to it? I have, have I have, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited by this because you've chosen three places that I've actually been to, which I'm not sure has happened yet on the podcast. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. That is yes, amazing. Yes, I, I have many years ago. So it's incredible. Well, I'm super jealous because this is a house I have not been in. Uh, the other two, obviously, I know very, very, very well. I've never been in it, but I've been on it. <laughs> I've been on it because uh, I and a group of friends uh, did a sort of trip down to Cornwall and Devon to pick up a few places. I think it was the early 90s. We, we found Creekveen because of its location and the way uh, it sits in the hillside. It has all these green roofs. So we were, I hope, I suppose, arguably, we were trespassing, but we did <laughs> begin to walk into the site a little bit. There appeared to be nobody there. Uh, no cars at the top. So basically, what I love about that house is the way it responds to its landscape and topography. And that's, again, something very much that we're interested in. And the challenges of that steeply sloping site uh, are extraordinary. But the views and the way in which a house has the potential to open to those views and to sort of sit in amongst the nature, I think, is uh, done so beautifully here. And that whole kind of arrival, so you arrive at the top of the hill and you're given a view straight down through between the two wings, straight out to the river. And then there's a sort of second axis, if you like, which then takes you sort of across the contours of the uh, hill into the two parts of the house. Uh, and I would say that's been a huge influence on T-Head fan. Um, it sounds I know like it, yeah. T- <laughs> yeah, the two wings yeah. uh, and the steep hill and the view to the river, you know, that's all yeah. I could be describing T-Head fan. And it's funny because a lot of people always say, oh, T-Head fan, it reminds me of Falling Waters, Frank Lloyd Wright. But actually, possibly, you know, I had more in my mind um, Creek Veen, which apparently when you start reading into it more, Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Waters very much an influence on them. Mm when they designed that house. So that's, they'd just come back, I think, from a kind of study trip looking at the Frank Lloyd Wright houses in the in the US. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons, you know, that's, yeah, I'd say a really extraordinary building that uh, has hugely influenced our work. Well, as you say, the, 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 the nature has been sort of allowed to, to kind of subsume it in some ways. It's quite amazing, isn't it? You've got the green roofs and then the steps down to the creek are covered in grass, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then there's, there's there's very sort of untamed planting everywhere. It feels very wild, I, I felt. I think it's very raw, isn't it? I mean, again, it's partly the choice of, yes, they've got a lot of planting and, and it sits and it hugs and sits into the hill that, that, that allows it to sort of feel very much like it's born out of that hillside, I think. Well, the, in terms of the materials, you know, you've got the, the sort of honey-coloured concrete blocks and you've got the welsh slate floors and then you've got aluminium window frames again it's quite sort of severe isn't it a bit like kensington place do you, is that how you like to live with those kind of materials what, what do you what do you think of that i like i think what i like to see is something that's very textural but i do quite like the idea that uh, it shouldn't be too busy uh, and so this stripped back quite raw textural material palette i think can work really really well because for me i think it's about allowing the way that people then inhabit those houses that's what brings it to life the color their paraphernalia although some of these houses have been designed with a lot of detail uh, for example the tom k house on the other end, and I think probably with some more of our bigger buildings, I like the idea that you don't over-design it and that there is space and gaps, if you like, left for people to 
make it their own, to adapt it, to to add to it um, and to bring it to life and to use it in ways that you might not imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are certain themes emerging through this conversation. I can I can really <laughs> see your... No, but it's very clear. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually. It's really clear. But obviously this, this, this idea of sort of spatially uh, up, upside down living has, has come through, but also this idea of separating the living spaces from the sleeping spaces because here you've got as you say two very clearly defined wings separated by this dramatic staircase and so do you think that if space allows that's the kind of optimal arrangement to separate the two functions in that way i think it's uh it works really well when you're designing a home that needs to work, you know, needs to sort of feel intimate and private and comfortable for maybe just two, two or three people, but can have many, many people come and enjoy it and stay as well. You know, this this way of breaking a house down so that it does actually operate in a more efficient way. You're not heating everything. But I think also another thing that the two wings bring is just this huge variance, if you like, of different spaces and different views. And I think another thing that works seems to work really well at Creekveen is um, just that you don't get everything all at once. You know, there's different parts of the house extends out into different parts of the garden. You get different views. And so different ambiences, different atmospheres uh, are created in, in the sort of rooms inside. Uh, some are top lit, some have got spectacular, you know, the big open views and others are, are more private. And I just think that range of spaces is, is really important to create. And 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 by doing so, you're you're not so prescriptive because those rooms mm. could be used in a number of different ways, and it's more about their atmosphere rather than them being designated as a bedroom or a study or a, you know. Well, exactly right. Which is which is actually borne out in the fact that there's also lots of sliding partitions inside the house, aren't there? So actually, spaces can be opened out to become much bigger spaces or contribute to the overall larger surface area when you're in there. There's something about don't you think that. If you're going to the f- furthest reaches of Cornwall, it's it's sort of the journey itself kind of heightens that sense of arrival, don't you think? Because it's 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 actually such a long way from anywhere, Creekveen, um, yeah. and you kind of finally get there, and then and then this this house gently reveals itself, but channels you towards this just stunning creek, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there it is. It's it's amazing. I mean, you're right. It takes a hell of a long time to get there. I think we got there as it was dusk. Just finding it, I think, was quite challenging from memory. I mean, it's yeah. just yeah. lots of teeny weeny narrow lanes and crossing the river so many times. You're mm. thinking, how many rivers have I got to cross? <laughs> you could almost miss it. I mean, you you can't. It's not visible from the road, so that heightens that whole experience of of of. Um, the reveal or, or or not, you know, not knowing what to expect next and what you're encountering. And then similarly, I think um, when we were building tea head fan, a lot of the neighbours were up in arms because uh, the huge amount of scaffolding required to build the steel frame structure that was cantilevering towards the river um, made the house look enormous. And then to my horror, the contractors stuck up a double storey cabin as well, right on the roadside. Okay. And so everything was beginning to look really gigantic. <laughs> Um, and really imposing. In fact, there was even a joke. There'd been a really bad year when the river flooded and it washed part of the bridge away, which we're right by the little bridge. And the joke was apparently that we were building the the new sort of seven bridge across the river because that's what it looked like. So I say all of that because 
there was this real concern that our house was going to stick out like a sore thumb, you know, and it was going to be way too big and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, when the scaffolding came down and it's clad in uh, Welsh slate, it's completely camouflaged. People coming to visit it and coming to stay at it often miss it altogether. It's only when you actually arrive at the front door that everything starts opening up. And I suppose, you know, again, th- that's very much that kind of sequence you get at, at Creekveen, that kind of that sudden drop in front of you with the grassy steps and, and the view out, and then you, you, you disappear sideways as you do at our house into either part of the, of the wings. And what's amazing as well is that there's another modernist marvel across the other side of the estuary called Pillwood House, uh, which, uh, which was designed by Sue Rogers and her partner, John Miller. And um, yes. that, that was also commissioned by her parents, of course, in the 1970s. Yes, but it's amazing right. that you've got these two things facing off against each other quite different as well aren't they I mean I'm sure that says a lot about relationships as well you know I mean I just mm. I just get very intrigued about kind of people's behavior and relationships with each other and how that gets played out in our homes and our houses and and, and how as architects designers we can mm. facilitate that or not you know and I'm really keen that we shouldn't be too prescriptive I'm really interested in it's you know in a way stripping back or or, or just creating a s- series of really amazing spaces that people can inhabit and bring to life in their own way. Um, and I always love that, um, you know, when we have guests staying at Tea Head Fan, they often write notes to let <laughs> us know how day five and they've still found another view or another space that just feels completely different to oh, how they remember it the day before or, you know, or and I love all of that, you know, that there's kind of things to be found and um, spaces that keep changing their atmospheres and revealing different that's experiences. What it's about. That's what it's about, isn't it? The human experience in the space. Even for us, and we've, we we know the house intimately, there's still moods to the house that are constantly changing. I mean, I, I still am amazed that I'd never really thought about how the living space, which I was so obsessed about being close to the river and looking down onto the water, is now so much more about being in amongst the trees. You know, this, So I, I actually quite like that th- things turn out differently to the, how you might imagine. And, you know, that's all the same with people using spaces in a way you hadn't imagined. And I just think that that's a sort of sign of something working really well when it has even more kind of ways of um, working or being inhabited. Thank you, thank you Sarah. I, as I say, there's just such clear themes emerge through what you've said and the things that you've chosen I, I have a certainly have a really good sense of what you're about and what your influences are so I, I've very much enjoyed it so thank you okay thank you Matt <laughs> thank you to Sarah you can see the places we talked about on the Modern House website which is themodernhouse.com this episode was produced by Kate Taylor of Feast Collective and mixed by Andy Taylor Next time, I'll be chatting to the fashion designer Yudon Choi. In the meantime, do follow the show, leave us a review, and of course, share it with any Right Said Fred fans you might know. I'm too sexy for this podcast. Bye. Bye.